I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of John, John chapter 11. Continue our sermon series this morning in the book of John, looking at the different I am statements. John chapter 11, beginning with the 17th verse this morning. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. John chapter 11, verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning and ask that you now take your word and burn in our hearts your desires, burn in our minds your will. We pray that you take your word this morning and bring about faith in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your revelation that you give to us. We ask that you give us application now. In Jesus' name, amen. At some point in your life, I'm sure you've said something like the following, this is not exactly right. I'm sure you've had an experience where you knew everything was not exactly working the way it's supposed to work. Everything was not in right order. Uh, Many years ago, I was traveling out to Colorado on a ski trip with with some youth, and we had driven a bus out there and skied, and then we were driving back in the bus, and we skied all day, and we decided to drive through the night to, to get home early the next morning. So we were driving through the night, and I decided to let someone else drive the bus for a little while. And so then I laid down in the bus, just in the center aisle on the floor, and started to try and sleep. But as I laid down, all of a sudden I could tell not everything was right. It all of a sudden sounded like there was a big helicopter flying right on top of the bus. And we're in the middle of the night in the middle of Nebraska thing. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right. So I tried to sleep, but it just kept getting louder and louder things. So I thought, oh, something's not right. So I got up looking out at the bus wondering, what's going on? So the bus driver pulls over. We look around. We've got a flat tire on the back of the bus. And it's the inside dually that's flat on the bus. So now we've got a problem. Everything's not operating the way that it's supposed to operate. 
So we stop at the next little town in Nebraska. There's a Walmart there, and pretty much everything else is closed. And so we're thinking to ourselves, we're going to need someone special to get out of this mess. I mean, I'm pretty mechanical, and I'm a pretty good do-it-yourselfer, as you know, thing. But the problem with this situation was that the spare tire on the back of the bus, how, for whatever reason, accidentally got welded on. And so you couldn't take it off. So here we were, stuck in the middle of Nebraska, in the middle of the night, and we had to change the tire. Everything's not right. We need someone to come and save the day. We need someone to make everything right on our behalf. I'm sure that you've been in the exact same situation in your life before, where you've said, everything's not right. We need someone to come and fix it. And I think you would agree with me this morning that we could look at the world around us and say, Everything just doesn't seem to be right. I mean, this can't be right. Not only when we look at the world around us, but when we look at our own hearts and our own minds, we know that everything's not in right order. For we don't even live up to our own expectations of ourselves, let alone live up to the expectations of God. Everything's not right. Well, who's going to come and put it in right order? Mary and Martha, who we see in our Bible study story this morning, are in the exact same situation. Everything is not right for them. They're in the midst of devastation. They just lost a close friend, and they're thinking to themselves, who's going to fix this? They're thinking to themselves, hey, if God would have shown up, if God would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. I'm sure that you've been in that situation before, where you had something in your life where you just thought to yourself, why doesn't God just reach down right now and take care of this? He could. So all of us have been there where we're asking someone to put everything back in the right place. Mary and Martha are there saying, God, put everything back in the right place. And then Jesus comes and visits them, and it's in this context that Jesus makes this profound statement where Jesus basically confronts them and also confronts the crowd with a truth about himself and a truth about what he does. And so that's where we come upon our I am statement today, is there's a difficult situation, the people want things put right, and so Jesus is now faced with a little bit of a challenge to put things right. So if you look with me in John chapter 11, verse 26, verse 25 and 26, Jesus is talking with Martha and he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying to them, I am the resurrection and the life. And in other words, what, what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, hey, I am the one who restores all things because I am the anointed king. Jesus is saying, hey, I am the one who comes and puts everything in right order because I am the Messiah. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what he's really saying is he is the one who brings restoration for he is the anointed king. Jesus is not just trying to bring comfort to Martha here in this situation, but Jesus is making a declaration of who he is and his mission, and it's got relevance for us today. The first thing that we have to understand about what Jesus says is he's saying he is the anointed king. What this means is this is another word for the word Messiah. And we see this, if you would, look with me in John chapter 11, verse 27. Martha responds to the Lord and says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, which in other words means you are the anointed one, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so Martha responds by saying, Yes, you are the anointed one, the, the king who's come to fix everything. And if you'll look with me, 
Back up to verse 24. So back up to 24, Martha said previously, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, there was this viewpoint among the religious leaders that at some point there was going to be this grand day where the Messiah would show up, and when the Messiah would show up, everything would be restored to perfection. So what would happen is the nation of Israel would regain its position in the world. And when the Israel regains its position in the world, everything is put back in right order. Because when Israel regains its position, that means God's Messiah is on the throne. And so there was this expectation that the Messiah was going to come and restore everything. There was this longing for an anointed king to come and do that. And Martha recognizes that. What they didn't expect was for this anointed king to show up then and not restore everything on the spot. So, so Jesus has got a little different game plan here, which made it a little hard for the crowd to understand because they expected that Messiah to come and solve on the spot. And so that helps us understand a little bit why the crowd, re, crowd reacts with animosity towards Jesus. Because Jesus is making these claims. He's basically saying that he is the long-awaited-for Messiah, which is a big deal because this nation has been waiting for the Messiah all of the scriptures in the Old Testament are, are promising about this future Messiah who's going to come. Now you've got someone on the scene who's saying, I'm that guy. And we get proof of this. If you look with me in John chapter 11, jump down to verse 53. We didn't read this far, but if you go down to verse 53, we get a description of how the crowd responds to what Jesus is saying here. Verse 53, it says, So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. This is how the crowd responds, which shows us a little bit how radical of a statement Jesus is making. I mean, why would you want to put someone to death? Well, they want to put him to death because he's claiming to be this anointed king. So if you look at each I am statement that we've studied up to this point, there's a reaction from the crowd or the religious leaders. That reaction helps us understand the magnitude of the claim that Jesus is making because the crowd knows that Jesus is making this radical claim that he is the one, he is the true king who's going to make everything right. You know, you and I have heard of probably the Messiah complex. And we've probably used it maybe to describe someone, use it to describe someone who thinks that they're going to be the be-all, end-all. Sometimes it gets used to describe a politician who thinks that when that politician gets in office, they are the be-all, end-all. So when they get in, everything's going to flourish. Everything's going to start doing it doing the way it's supposed to do. The economy's going to start working perfectly. Our social systems are going to be fixed because this politician is the be-all, end-all. So sometimes they describe them as the Messiah. They're going to make everything right. Well, Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited-for king who's going to make everything right. In other words, he's saying all of God's good plans find fulfillment in him. In other words, he's saying that God's ultimate plan of bringing everything under God's reign, finds fulfillment in him. So God's got this ultimate plan, which Martha acknowledges that there's going to be a future resurrection, where everything's going to come underneath the power and the sovereignty of God. Jesus is basically saying, that plan is going to come into fulfillment on me, in me. Jesus is declaring that that plan only happens in him and through him. He's making a radical claim to be the long-awaited-for Messiah. This helps us understand why the crowd gets a little bit anxious. 
The crowd wants to kill him now because basically Jesus is committing treason. In the eyes of the crowd, Jesus is committing treason because Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Jesus is claiming to have all this power and authority. Jesus says he is the anointed king. So what does the anointed king do? We get a little picture here in the verses that Jesus shares that the anointed king is going to bring restoration through resurrection. Look with me, if you would, back in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. So in verse 25, he says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, Jesus is saying, death will not have the final stay. In other words, death is not the end game. Jesus is saying here that there's a future resurrection. So death is just a transition point. It's not an end. The future resurrection means death is a transition, not an end. The majority of people look at death as an end. That when death comes, we don't know exactly what happens next, so most religions kind of try to put an idea together based off of various ideas, based off of various philosophies. But the difference of Christianity is that our view of life after death is not based off of an idea or based off of a philosophy. Our idea of life after death is based off of a person and an event. So Jesus is saying here, there's going to be a future resurrection. We're basing it off of that promise, and then we're basing it off of Jesus backs up that promise by himself rising from the dead. And so when we sang this morning, I will rise, this is not just some idea that religious leaders got in a huddle and said, we need to come up with something that's going to be appealing to people to grow our religion. We say, I will rise because of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. There is a future resurrection, which means death is just a transition point, not an end. And this should change the way, then, that we go throughout life now. So, for example, very practical application is the way that we handle aging. Aging is an extremely difficult process for a lot of people. Because usually when someone is aging, they're having to give up things. They're losing power. They're losing some of their identity if their identity was wrapped up in their work. They're losing their earning power for wealth and sometimes losing memory and other physical capacities. So usually aging is a time of loss. Well, from the Christian perspective, aging is actually a process of gaining. Because as we're aging, what we're actually getting closer to of gaining complete fulfillment of being in the presence of Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, but yet he still struggles with being here for fruitful ministry. It's because the Apostle Paul knew that death was a transition point, not an end. Jesus is making a radical claim that there is a future resurrection. This is distinctly different for Christianity, that we are claiming to have the answer for death. We are claiming to say that death will not have the final word. No one else even makes this claim. But Jesus makes the claim, and then he backs up the claim by rising from the grave himself. But Jesus doesn't just say, hey, okay, your future is good to go, so just do whatever you want now. Look with me, if you would, at what he says next in verse 26. He says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So in other words, he's saying now there's this aspect of living today, and as you live today, you're going to live by faith 
today. So life is not just in the future, it is here and now. This is the beauty of what Jesus does. Jesus comes and he preaches and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Yet, we still know that the kingdom of God is not here in fullness because everything's still not completely right. So salvation breaks in. Salvation is supposed to be experienced today, yet the fullness of that salvation is not experienced until the complete resurrection. A lot of the times we treat salvation as something in the future. I've got my ticket punched. I'm good to go. But the idea is not that we get our ticket punched, we're good to go. But the idea is that God enters into our midst now. The kingdom shows up here. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for salvation to take place right here in our midst, that we begin to experience the reign of God here on earth. And so eternal life begins today. In John chapter 17, it says, eternal life is this, to know Jesus Christ. And so that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's the beginning of eternal life. Salvation is not just the future resurrection. It's here, right now in our midst, under the power of the Holy Spirit, when we come under the authority of Christ. So many of us live as though we're good to go. God just cares that we've got a place to go after death. No, God cares about here and now. If you look at all of Jesus' commands, what do they deal with? The here and now. Jesus is commanding us how we live right now, how we live this salvation out right now. Life begins today. That's why when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it has great implications for our lives right here today. My life today is affected by the fact that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the first thing that we need to know as we look at our life today and how this statement affects us is this. We need to expect difficulty in the in-between. We need to have realistic expectations for what life is going to be like in the flesh. Life is going to be an extreme challenge in the flesh because of the power of sin. We need to have that honest expectation. So many of us get disappointed with God. So many of us wonder what's going on. We don't have realistic expectations because we don't recognize the, the depth of sin, that all of creation has fallen. And as long as we're living in the midst of this fallen creation, there's going to be difficulty. Some of the most challenging times in life are when you're living in the in-between times. You know, when you're in college and you go home from college and it's Thanksgiving time and the family's like, well, where are you going to sit? With the adults or with the kids? At least in our house, it was like, Unless you brought a girl home, you were with the kids. So every time I was with the kids, thing. And, and so there's this in-between time where you're kind of an adult, not really an adult. You can converse about some things, but you still don't get to participate in all of the conversations. It's that in-between time. It's just like middle school. If you talk to teachers, they talk about the most difficult time in a student is in middle school. Because they're really in between that. You're not a full, you know, fledged teenager yet. But you haven't left childhood. You're just you got stuff happening to your physical body. you got stuff going on emotionally. You're starting to think differently. So you got all this weird stuff going on, and it's in that in-between where it's really difficult to live. Well, you and I today are living in the in-between time. You could say that we are tweeners because the fullness of God's kingdom has not come yet. Yet at the exact same time, it is already here as we live under the reign of the Holy Spirit. 
So we are in the in-between time. And Jesus has promised that future resurrection. He's promised the life that we have today, yet there's going to be difficult right now in the in-between. Do you have realistic expectations for what life is going to be like today? And so as we live in this in-between time, and since life is difficult, all of us are trying to find balance in life, right? Because life is difficult, then we say, well, we've got to get balance so we can experience life. Well, Jesus has a completely different perspective on how we come to have balance in our lives. Look with me, if you would, back there in John chapter 11, verse 26. Again, he says, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The difference of how we talk about balance and secular psychologists talk about balance is balance for the Christian comes through a life of belief, not a life of getting everything together. There's a lot of books right now, even in Christian circles, there's a lot of books about how we have to get our life balanced between work, between church, between a family, all of this stuff. We've got to get equal time and we've got to figure out, just get balanced to your life. Jesus has got a completely different perspective. Can you imagine someone coming up to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, you need to tell your followers to get some balance. Because Jesus, every time he approached a crowd, he said something like the following, Sell everything you have, forget your family, and follow after me. Jesus was not concerned about balancing our lives. We've got everything in this nice little clean-cut spot. We have balance when we have belief in him. The reason that we struggle with balance so much is that we've got vision problems. And when you have vision problems, what's the, one of the first things to go? Your balance. And our vision problem is this. At one moment, we're like so sucked into family. The next minute, we're so sucked into work. The next minute, we're so sucked into a hobby. Then we're like, oh, I got to get back to Jesus. Then we come back to Jesus for a moment. We're, our vision is going all over the place rather than consistent vision in one place that provides us balance to everything else. If you want balance in your life, it's all about belief in Jesus. Some of your lives are way out of balance. Some of you have prioritized work too much or you prioritized hobby too much. And, and the, the source of that, the reason behind that is this. It's because your faith is out of whack. When your trust gets in the right source and in the right person, it puts your other priorities in order. Then you give the right amount of attention to work, the right amount of attention to hobbies. If you want balance, it's about coming to belief in Jesus. It's about getting that vision on one spot. So our life today is greatly affected when we expect difficulty, when we have realistic vision. Our life today should be affected by the fact that we pursue balance by pursuing a life of faith in Jesus. And finally, if we just take Jesus at his word here, very simply, if we take Jesus at his word when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, to put it very simply, Jesus is a big deal. And for some of you, this is not formal enough religious language. This is just straightforward truth. If Jesus is who he says he is, Jesus is a really big deal. The reason that we make such a big deal about Jesus, the reason that we make such a big deal about church, the reason we make such a big deal about living out the way of Jesus is because Jesus himself is a big deal. You've heard the phrase before, you know, don't make a molehill into a mountain. 
And a lot of us are really good at making molehills into mountains. Stuff that's not important, we make way too important. Decisions that should be simple, we make way too complicated, where we've got to pretty much gather the whole Congress together to make up our minds. We're good at making small things into big things. But what we've done with Jesus is we've made a big person into a small thing in our lives. The reason that Jesus is a big deal in our lives is that because Jesus himself is a big deal. Jesus is not someone to simply be added to our life to get balance. If you go to a counselor, a psychiatrist, they're going to tell you, I can tell you exactly what they're going to tell you. You need to, you need to carve out 10 minutes a day to, to breathe a little bit easier. And what you need to do is you need to add in some sort of support group mechanism. So, so keep on doing what you're doing in work and play. Keep on spending your money the way that you're spending it. Keep on thinking the way you're thinking, but just add in these extra little elements. In other words, kind of add in Jesus as a little extra. Jesus is not a little extra to be added, to get balanced, but he is a king to be trusted in order to experience restoration. Most of us treat Jesus as a topping on our pizza when Jesus is the whole thing. He deserves to have the whole life oriented around him. Everything's not right today. Everything's not right in your life today. And a lot of people wait till the very end. And they face that moment of death, and that's when it's like pretty obvious, okay, this is not working out the way that I thought it was going to work out. So you wait till the end and you try and figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to make everything right? Jesus' desire is not that we just wait till the end and then capture some insurance so that we've got a game plan after the end comes. But Jesus wants to intervene right now, today. When we pulled off the side of the road with that bus with a flat tire, I thought, there's no way we're getting help in this small town. And then we finally got a hold of some guy that owned some tire shop. And we pulled up to this tire shop. This guy was pretty rough. And we got down, I kind of explained the situation to him, and then the smoke is just billowing from the cigarette in front of him, and he gets underneath the bus, and all you can hear is some curse words mumbling out about the situation with the tire being welded. And I'm just thinking to myself, oh man, this guy's a joker. There's no way we're getting out of here. A half an hour later, we're on the road. We found the right guy at the right time to get us back in right order. When the religious leaders looked at Jesus, they looked at it and said, who's this guy? A carpenter? A, a guy born in Bethlehem? Who, who's this guy who's crying? Where it says, Jesus weeped. Who's this guy? This guy's going to solve our problems? He doesn't have the look of a king. He doesn't have the feel of the king. But he has the DNA of a king because he comes from heaven, because he is the bread of the world, because he is the light of the world, because he is the gate and the good shepherd. The reason that he is a king is not because he looks like a king or acts like a king, it's because he has the DNA of a king, because he is God himself coming to earth. Most of us try to look to something that looks like it can deliver. It's time for us to look to someone whose looks actually aren't that spectacular to look to someone who from an earthly perspective you would think, I don't think can help us. But it's that very king who is approachable and who understands us. It's that very king 
who also has the power and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, everything is made right because the anointed king has come. Jesus Christ has died and has risen from the grave. Today, when we sing, I will rise, we're not singing an idea. We're singing a truth. And my prayer this morning is that you can sing that song, I will rise. Not just 50 years from now or 20 years from now or 10 years from now, but today I will rise and experience the life that Jesus has for me. Let us pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that not everything is right among us. We acknowledge that not everything is right within us. But we ask that you, Jesus, would come and make everything right in our hearts. We ask that you, Jesus, would continue to restore us into your image. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would enable us to rise today and experience new life. We pray that you'd capture our minds and our hearts with the hope of the resurrection. Enable us to walk by faith. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done on our behalf. You are awesome. You are triumphant. You are worthy of all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.